I've switched the recorder on. Um, and welcome, Dan Brunsden. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. To uh, otherwise <laughs> also known as the anthropologist. Um, and welcome to this first episode. So this is a bit new for both of us because you're the first person to take part in the same series. Yeah, I've never been on a podcast before. I did do that radio interview. Do you remember with uh, Shamu? Which I'm sure you absolutely <laughs> listened to. So, <laughs> cheers me on. <laughs> so for all, uh, yeah, for, for non-Aberdeen-based uh, people, Shamu is a Station House Media Unit, like yeah, radio yeah, station. It's like, it's sort of run part by the university, isn't it? Yeah. And what were you talking on that? Um, well, it was like a whole range of stuff. So okay. the show is called Talking Science. Okay. And so it's meant to be just to bring on researchers or academics yep. from the university to talk about their background. Um, but it's quite broad and quite open. So I just spoke about some of the work that we're doing here at HFW, like some of the public skills we as well. Um, but then just like my background and my work previously before coming to Aberdeen, like in Durham and Syria and all of this stuff. She was just interested in hearing about my past experiences. So I think similar topics are Similar topic then for today. So you're, you're actually more practiced than I am as the host <laughs> of this, who has the brilliant idea and then goes, ah. Um, hey, I love it. <laughs> so to describe the, the atmosphere in the room and the atmosphere of the day, and you mentioned HSRU, which is Health Services Research Unit um, at University of Aberdeen, um, where you've been working as a research assistant for just over a year. My one year anniversary is tomorrow. Tomorrow. Oh, no, so sorry, what? Day after. So goodness, you're leaving before a year. So actually, this is Dan's last day, yeah. hence we're recording. So we're having a bit of a small party in this recording room um, with some black coffee, some olives, and some nuts, because Dan does not eat cake. It's quite an amazing spread. You've really <laughs> pulled out all the stuff. They're so, they're so cherished. <laughs> Especially with the sign on the door that says, please do not disturb recording in progress yeah, in my handwritten. <laughs> and taped on the door. So hopefully we won't be disturbed, but. But yes, so on that, so you've been working here for the last year or so, mm -hmm. and you've been working in health services research. How did you get to that point? Oh, that's a long story, <laughs> so we'll, we'll probably have to break that up a little bit. But to come here in Aberdeen, yeah. uh, when I finished my postgraduate in medical anthropology, mm -hmm. I was just looking for ways that I could continue incorporating what I thought were like good parts of discipline, mm -hmm. like qualitative research skills and all these different methodologies we use in anthropology in a more practical and applied way within healthcare. Because that's what I've always sort of wanted to do since I discovered anthropology, actually. So with me specifically, my journey was like through a bunch of different disciplines before finding anthropology. I started off uh, doing uh, campus at my college. And then within that, there was a course on the Pune course in uh, Roman science. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. This is something I want to do at uni. So then I uh, took an extra course in it. And alongside, I took just sort of fell in love with the, with the courses. Then when I arrived at university, I changed straight away onto the anthropology and politics course. And then within that, there was an option to take a module on um, the social life of the economy, which is like uh, an economic anthropology perspective. And part of that touched on healthcare systems. And so then when it came time to choose a topic for my dissertation in undergraduate, I wanted to go within an area of medical anthropology, which mm -hmm. then spurred my postgrad and then sort of fueled my desire to continue this work.
help with the skill set that I've gained over the past couple of years. So that's like how I ended up here. But it's been quite a long meandering a journey. Long meandering journey. And so you mentioned college. So you finished school and went to college mm. first. Okay. And wh- whereabouts was that? So I'm from a little farming town called Sancester. Uh, I, well, I live in South Sturney, which is a village on the outskirts of Sancester. But that's in the Cotswolds in mm. Oxfordshire. Uh, I've sort of moved around periphery of the town a lot as I've grown up my parents moved quite a lot so mm-hmm. sometimes like one year I live in the town one year I live out oh. uh, but most of the time it's been small you know quiet farming life for me and you, I think you in uh, correspondence about setting this up you had the hashtag just village thing just so you village. had not been on <laughs> <laughs> any non-village mode of transport yeah. up until a certain age so this is, is right? probably something that anybody who has grown up in the countryside can probably relate to is that you don't normally have great access Yeah. And all of my friends lived within a 20-minute walk, so I didn't need to use buses or taxis or things like that. So I hadn't actually used the train prior to going to my undergraduate. So I think I played only like a couple of times, like what it is when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. I really remember. So the whole like public transport, big city life of cars and all this stuff was all new to me when I was a, <laughs> a 19-year-old actually going to my undergrad. Um, and where did you go? Uh, Birmingham, best city in the country. Why is that? Have you lived in Birmingham? I've never lived in Birmingham. I've been several times. Oh. <laughs> Birmingham is just like, it has all the things that you could want in a, in a good city. You know, it has mm-hmm. a great uh, sort of scene to it. It has all these amenities and access to different opportunities that you can have in places like London, but it's actually affordable. <laughs> you know, it was actually incredibly expensive to live there. And I just really enjoyed, I guess I'm probably biased to that because I did want to go there. Yeah. Probably everybody feels part of an undergrad city. But even compared to other cities that I've lived in, Birmingham has always got a special place because it's just got so many things going for it mm-hmm. that I really enjoy. So I, I recommend anybody to, to, go there. Yeah, to go there and try and see for yourself and then, and then you can agree with me. <laughs> you will agree with me. So why did you pick Birmingham? So being, being a country boy and, you know, and, and having then gone to co- and which, which college did you go to? I'm guessing it's for yeah. A-levels. It's called, um, well now it's called Science for Sixth Form. Okay. Right, okay, so it's like a follow-on from school yeah. in that kind of model. And then, so what, yeah, why why Birmingham? Well, I chose it for its ancient history department. So it was the subject that, that drew... Yeah, mm. I was torn between a couple of units because I was trying to go for the place that was like most specialty in the area that I wanted to study, right? Mm-hmm. And Birmingham had a good mix of like being top up there for ancient history, being a big city, so I could get some new experience and get out of the little village life, um, and having all these other things going for it. So when I decided on Birmingham, I was really thinking about the course, mm-hmm. which obviously then changed as soon as <laughs> I arrived, it instantly then changed. And sadly, Birmingham doesn't actually have a standalone anthropology degree that it offers. Ah. It's only given as joint honours. Okay. That's why I had to do it as anthropology and political science, because it was that or anthropology and African studies or anthropology and graphics, which would have made more sense, but that's what the course was for. Ah, oh, that's a shame, especially the African studies, because what I think is quite interesting about your career is you've come from, well, from Sirencester or just south, south of? Just south of, through Birmingham, and then you did some work in Africa before you came to Aberdeen, so I don't know, sorry, we're going to kind of meander around your life, but I suppose, was African studies full as well, or you hadn't really thought at that point that... I'd never thought about it. Yeah. So, I never, when I first started with anthropology, a lot of the work and topics that we were studying on weren't actually specifically related to Africa. So obviously, as any you know, good cohesive anthropologist 
Yeah. Grounded in employment and race. And, and Malinowski. And yeah, and all these, all these like really bad aspects of the discipline that sort of formed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, the A-level that I took, the emphasis was on being aware of that mm-hmm. and emphasising how we are obviously no longer this sort of discipline. What we're basically trying to do is just understand human culture by doing it through narrative based mm-hmm. and exposing things that you hold to be fact, which in reality are just cultural illusions. And that's true of any every culture. So there was never any specific focus in uh, the contemporary anthropology per se on Africa. And when I um, was studying in my undergrad, my first research project in the first year was on um, the Mormon church and space and place and how they use that to create a sense of identity. So I was in a Mormon church for a brief period of time. But these are quite small, these are like as a student, you know, smaller like practice research mm-hmm. projects. Um, in my second year, I was looking at a similar sort of dynamic of space and place, but this time with language amongst the deaf community in Serbia, because I joined a um, British Sign Language course when I first arrived at my undergrad. So I knew, obviously, my sign language teacher and all of his family were also deaf and the deaf community there. Um, so I was exploring that in my second year. And then my third year, when I focused on uh, medical anthropology, I was looking at traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine used in conjunction with each other. It's uh, medical pluralism, is the name for it, where people who are exposed to different, sometimes conflicting healthcare systems when growing up will have a pluralistic view of what is an appropriate treatment for a certain illness and what constitutes an illness. And that's very dependent on mm-hmm. not just the upbringing, but the healthcare system that you're using at that specific instance. And so I found that super interesting. And I, for that, I was able to spend some time in Hong Kong, actually, as well as in Birmingham. So I was with the Birmingham uh, Chinese student community for a part of it, and then uh, Hong Kong community. So I have a friend who lived there who could take me to places like the, um, there's a medical museum there of traditional Chinese medicine. Because Hong Kong, as a former British protectorate, was it? Um, was exposed to like obviously traditional Chinese medicine, but also the influx of Western biomedicine that we as a UK practice. So all throughout my undergrad, and even before that in my A level, I never had any sort of specific focus on Africa. So anthropology and African studies, although I guess are complementary in terms of the course at Birmingham, because mm-hmm. it's found out in studies, so I guess there's a lot of specialty there. Yeah. That was never something I ever really thought about. So I've, I've since yeah now done some work in um, Sierra Leone, part mm-hmm. of my postgraduate. But that was, uh, luckily enough, through my um, course teaching at the time. So her name is Dr. Hannah Brown, and she teaches at uh, Durham University, where I did my postgraduate. And she's part of this uh, research consortium called Marox, which researches Lassa fever, which is a viral hemorrhagic fever, and zoonotic in that it spreads through contact with rodents. The rodents are called uh, Mastinia zambensis, which is more looks like a shrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's endemic to parts of sub-Saharan and Western Africa. And this call that they were putting out as part of the research consortium with two MSc researchers, one from Sierra Leone and then one from uh, the institution which is known as the Fidim Research Consortium. And so I applied for that and I got the slot for it and I was able to then go to Sierra Leone mm-hmm. and work with uh, Dr. Rashid Antiman, who is a um, lab director in Sierra Leone, he's also a member of this consortium, and then uh, Joseph Fidim, who was the other MSc student from Sierra Leone. So uh, the three of us were working within the consortium for on a specific area that hasn't actually received that much academic attention, mm-hmm. which is about uh, rodent control methods. So it's like the ways that people interact with and control their exposure to rodents in their homes and also in the surrounding village areas. Because obviously, as a zoonotic disease, the initial point of transmission, which is the vast majority of cases, is the exposure to rodents. And it's transmitted through infected fluids. That can be anything from a rodent eating leftover food and leaving its saliva on there or urinating 
there will be some. There's not much about the ways that people are controlling yeah. So that's how I sort of worked my way through anthropology and ended up in the field of the area. So to kind of rewind a, a little bit there, you moved, so you did your undergraduate, which in England would have been three years, mm-hmm. yeah, and then you finished and then you went to Durham. So you saw the advert, but had you always planned on doing a postgrad? No, oh, the exact opposite. When, <laughs> when I started my third year, I was like, thank God, this is going to be over soon, because I was just, mm. I, I love, the only thing that got me through it was just how much I love my course, right? Yeah. So if ever anybody asks me for any advice on anything to do with like, careers or studying, it has to be something that you just enjoy. <laughs> and then everything else you can work on out later. There's so many people when you're doing something like anthropology that nobody's heard of. It's like, oh, what are you going to do with that? What job can you get with that? Is like what job can you really get with most non-vocational degrees and stuff? And that's sort of beside the point. The point should be what are you happy? What's going to make you happy? Because mm-hmm. okay, you can do a degree that's going to give you a job, but if you hate that job, then you'll wake up one day and you'll be 30 and you look back on 10 years of your career after leaving university and you won't be doing anything. Yeah. So like maybe I'm still a bit naive to, to think that, but I just I wouldn't have made it through my undergrad if it weren't for how much I cared about this mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when it came time to say goodbye to anthropology, and I was thinking, what am I actually going to do? What work would I enjoy doing? The answer was still anthropology. anthropology. So then anthropology. Begrudgingly, I will have to <laughs> go on to do a postgraduate, but it needs to be in a topic that I'm very really passionate about. So that's why I then made anthropology. And did you really feel like, you know, at that point, yeah, what do I enjoy doing? Anthropology. And so then I had to go and do the postgrad. I mean, how many of your um, contemporaries on the undergrad course got jobs doing anthropology? Is it possible to do anthropology? Yeah, this is a tricky thing. I think the kids are changing a lot recently yeah. because a lot more people do have undergraduate degrees. Mm-hmm. And so I guess a standard for entry for a lot of research roles specific to a field that aren't just general might be MSc. Mm-hmm. The only reason I think I got my job here was because of the experience I was able to get while at my MSc. So it's not just the extra topics that you cover. So say for mine, it includes things like public health, global health, yeah. Evolutionary perspectives on Western diseases, all these things that I then ultimately needed to be using. I'm going to be using now in my, in my new role. Yeah. But it was also the chance to then do an extended research project, like the research consortium I was able to join. I was in Sierra Leone for around two months. Mm-hmm. Whereas most people doing the undergraduates don't have access to the same level of resources as you're afforded as a postgraduate student. Yeah. And so it can be a lot more difficult to build up that level of experience that would be applicable for a research role. So if you wanted to work in a research field, you still do it as just an undergraduate with, with an undergraduate degree but the problem is that might not be as focused as you want so for me to get this pro- this job as a research assistant within a clinical trials unit in the health services research unit probably relied on my master's but I do know some people who have just done their undergraduates and are working in similar roles but they're not sort of focused on a specific topic as yet I mean I don't know the projects that they're on but it's not like specific to an uh, area they were studying yeah. so they've had to I guess also fine it depends really on what they want to do with that mm-hmm. and if they didn't want to do an MSc or any other masters then that's the right choice for them to be honest yeah. because forcing yourself to do a postgrad is, is not really <laughs> not it's a slog <laughs> like it's the, I think it's the same for a, a same mindset you need for a PhD mm-hmm. anybody about a PhD is like you need to do something that you love that you enjoy and that you're passionate about because it's going to test you and it's going to push you at times and at least my experience after my masters was the exact same Time, so many times when I just thought I could just, you know, book a flight to some anywhere in Europe and leave behind all my phone and stuff so no one can contact me and just like disappear for X amount of time because it's just like it, everything can.
yeah and then just and so sorry i'll let you have a sip of coffee <laughs> and i'm just checking we're still recording yeah we're still recording i always i normally when i in my work as a qualitative researcher i use a, an audio recorder that has a red light on it so i know that it's still operating and that this fancy kit that we have here today uh, doesn't have a red light so i'm panicking without my red light um so you left Birmingham, but you did your, your postgrad in Durham, which is, I guess, because of um, because it was advertised there. But you didn't fall in love with Durham. Well, yeah. So I like the city. And I, like, <laughs> I liked my experience there, and I met some fantastic people. Like yeah. one of the best friends of my life I met during my postgrad at Durham, which is not normally expected to be there because you expect after undergraduate, in terms of your time at university, that you've met you've spent three years with people. So yeah. Sometimes you've met maybe. Yeah. Um, my postgrad obviously only being a year, I anticipated there wouldn't be enough time to forge similar levels of friendship, but that was totally wrong. So I had great times in Durham, but the reason I didn't stay in Birmingham at least was just because medical anthropology as anthropology is just quite a nation specific area. Yeah. So there aren't actually that many countries, uh, universities in the country that offer it as a, as a course. I initially applied for a UCL and I got okay. accepted, but I couldn't afford it. So it was. £10,000 in tuition fees, which is right. the um, current max for the postgrad loan the government offers. And so then I could have done that and then I guess live in London without any reason for paying rent or food, which, yeah. And on top of the workload, like you mentioned already about the, you know, the masters, it's, it's not for the, the faint-hearted, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, um, so I worked all during my undergraduate. Yeah. Each year I had different sort of side jobs just to help okay. fund it. And I was really hoping to avoid that in my postgraduate because So with Durham, not only were the fees less, but there was a, uh, a loan system that I could use to cover tuition, so the government loan to cover rent, and then that gave me, I guess, like £2,000 left over to live on for like a year or so, at least, so I could do this research I could do and stuff, yep. which was a bit more of an ease of mind, you know, because I didn't have to worry about constantly having to find any other job that I could fit around my studies, yeah. because you need to make sure, like, for my undergraduate, my maintenance loan didn't even cover rent. Yeah, so you had to work. Well, I had, to, I had to use an overdraft to live on yeah. and then work to make up the short-term rent. Right. You know, it's just lots of things you can do balancing alongside other things because there's so much to do at university that are outside of the screen that are still beneficial. So mm -hmm. I was an editor on the um, magazine in my college. That was a great experience. I loved the team I was working with and I think we had a really great product on any of it. Yeah. And there were so many things attached to that that other students enjoyed that we provided as well volunteerships. You know? And then there's things like sports team, like I joined the sports team that I wrote for like all these things that personally are actually beneficial to you, yep. that otherwise get sidelined if you're too busy focusing on, okay, I need to get up the next year, yeah. spread that around my class next week, and then make rent, because even if it's not. And they're teaching you loads of, I hate to say, like transferable skills, but you know, there are a lot, there's lots of learning in that, and lots yeah. of exposure to different people you don't meet on the program necessarily, and things that are, you know, about health and well-being, but also about learning stuff and um, teamwork. Exactly. doing things yeah. that you can put on your CV that you can show that you've been really involved. Like at Durham, they have this thing that I was involved with called the Global Citizenship Programme, mm. which hosts a series of things like cafe design, talks, and guest speakers, and it's all basically run by like volunteers helping out who are students themselves. And it's the same for the um, Graduate Common Room Committee, which is the student committee which runs the college. It's all volunteer-based. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some remuneration in terms of you get, I think, either free accommodation or reduced accommodation if you are the president or the another similar high, high role. But there was, when I was on the, 
most of us were volunteers, right? So I was the press secretary for it. And so each week I had to do various things, like not just office hours, but like uh, regular newsletter activities, okay, yeah. dealings and all, anything that would fall in the purview of the press secretary. Um, and that was all, you know, volunteer. That's all alongside doing other volunteer stuff, and that's all alongside the course. Mm-hmm. And these are great experiences, they're great skills, and I loved it. I signed up for it knowing that I had other work to do, and that it'd be volunteer based, because I wanted to do it. Yeah. But that's because I had my postgrad, the opportunity to not have to work have on to work, which I didn't yeah. have in my undergraduate. And a lot of people, when they do their postgraduate, don't have the opportunity to do that. So I just, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle sometimes with the funding. Yeah, it's a real, and like, and you're trading off develop personal development experiences and stuff. Oh, yeah. Although, and so you, you say during your undergraduate, you did have jobs. Did you have, can you tell us a bit about the jobs? Yeah, so the main one that I loved doing the most was the student ambassador job. Oh, yeah, okay. So I think the one thing I can talk about more than any other time is anthropology. And so <laughs> it started off just on like African visit days and tourism days. Okay, yeah. You'd work like a couple of days on the school and make some lectures and you'd talk about anthropology. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. Any away days, like I went to London Anthropology Day as well to represent the Aeneid as like a student representative to talk about the course. So all of this stuff that I did was mainly around like the work I could get in the department because it was like it just came a lot easier. But then from that you can do things like accommodation tours, which I did, which you just take people around where they can where they might be staying in the future. Yeah. Um, but then other like side jobs I did also just on like anything related to the course that you just need to. So it was mostly within the university or for the university itself that you you worked. Wow, yeah, so okay, so I've been within higher education for a long time now. Proper, first, like, <laughs> yeah, my veteran. First, yeah, my first job after graduating was back at a uni again, so I can't escape. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that job, so you say your first job after, so you did your undergrad, then straight away your postgrad, yeah. and then the job after your postgrad. Yeah, so you came straight, so can you tell us about coming here? <laughs> Moving to Aberdeen, well, so. Probably it's a bit different for me just because I think specific to my course and like as an anthropologist mm-hmm. you expect to travel a fair amount for it uh, for however many extended periods of time. So for my research and postgrad I was in Victoria for two months. Mm-hmm. Um, for my new role that I'm starting next week, I think, mm-hmm. oh, I'll pass that around very soon, <laughs> uh, I'll be going back to Sierra Leone for four months. So I'm fairly used to just you know taking to other routes and go somewhere completely yeah. new. So coming to Aberdeen wasn't as daunting for me as it might be for somebody who perhaps isn't used to having to completely <laughs> say goodbye to everybody you know and arrive yeah. fresh in a new city. But at the same time, it still was a bit of an adjustment. Uh, Aberdeen obviously is far too north than Madrid. I don't know if people can tell by my accent, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not from the north. Um, so there's obviously things to adjust in terms of just general day-to-day living, like weather. But <laughs> like like you know, weather. <laughs> I know it's probably a cliche that. <laughs> What's wrong with our weather? <laughs> it's, it's the cold. I think it's because it's right on the North Sea, right? Yeah. So like, no matter how nice the day is, the freezing cold wind. That I mean, I have like sensitive teeth anyway. <laughs> so I so I can't eat ice cream, let alone have a face with this cold wind. So I get toothache <laughs> and I get brain freeze. So you have to walk around like really wrapped up with your mouth yeah. shut, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I definitely okay. look out of place wearing like a thick woolen winter hat with
put it together, yeah. That quality of research methods courses um, Zoe. Yep. Uh, so I've had a great time working here. I had the privilege of sitting in on what I think you said was your first ever lecture. First ever lecture, yeah. Which was fantastic. And that's, I'm really pleased, and I think, I don't know if this can be heard in public, but that you will continue to contribute to our teaching here. Behind the scenes. <laughs> So for maybe, I guess, because I haven't spoken to um, LSHBM yet about yeah. it. So I don't think there'd be any difficulty because I wouldn't be contributing new material. It would be like what you've really, yeah. been recorded would remain as part of the course. And I'd just be available to be contacted for questions and feedback. Questions. Which is obviously going to keep building your network and stuff, but certainly, I mean, I know from that lecture how you brought anthropology, applied anthropology to life um, through your research and through pictures. I think that was, you know, to, to me the biggest thing about teaching students is bringing it to life. And I think, well, yeah. I, I, I loved your lecture, um, and so I'm really glad that you'll be you'll be able to even well, well, we'll argue with with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which is your yeah, next employer. Right. I think because I've still got a very recent experience of any lectures. Right? Yeah, I was yeah. Right, so it's quite fresh then. And I'm not going to name any names, but there was one lecture I had, and it was like a two-hour block, and they probably were incredibly intelligent and well acclaimed in their field, no doubt about it. But their style of presentation wasn't conducted for effective learning. Mm. That's how I'll put it, because it was slide after slide of a script, just text on the PowerPoint. And so it would just read through, it would be a PowerPoint slide with a big paragraph to explain the whole slide, and they would yep. read it verbatim. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's no heavy. How you are in any topic, that's the number one way to kill it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just so close to falling asleep every lecture and I wasn't alone in that. And so you just lose the opportunity, the whole point of being there is to learn from this person. Yep. And there's probably too much expectation to have on people that they be expert orators and expert presenters and experts in their field. Mm. But there are certain things that anybody can do to a slide that you can mix up with. And so when I was creating my lecture, Yeah. Like I want to be mostly pictured, little text that if yeah. at all, but when needed so people have notes. But then I also provide a printout so people have things so they don't have to keep like quickly trying to write down an instances and slide changes. Yeah. And just start off in a way that is acceptable for somebody. Mm-hmm. Because I think especially if you're talking about research methods, uh, for this course a lot of them, a lot of the students didn't have a background in politics for Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it can probably come across as quite abstract when you're trying to talk about these like models and mechanisms and building an analytical web and it's all very theoretical mm. and so the way I wanted to do it was first this is practically how it actually looks like when it's being done this is what I did this is how I did it and this is the result and then hopefully <laughs> that gave us like a grounding for everybody to be a bit more on the same page and okay this is what we're actually talking about here so then when I start talking about the strengths and weaknesses of the qualities of research methods and how they feed into each other and how you use things to build the ethnographic record to then inform your analysis. When I say ethnographic record, it's got a mental image. See what that looks like. That's that picture of the ravage exchange and that interview and it all comes together. So like putting a face on the sort of just abstract theory is probably that's what I wanted to do. I think that's it, and willingness to be transported into that place. But certainly for me, the imagery there 
brings you almost like you're you're reliving the journey with you and the experiences and you know you're talking and I think that's the other thing you know you're talking about enjoying it and I think your passion comes through when you talk about and certainly in that lecture it was interesting and I have to say I was not surprised when you told me you were leaving to go to go to do some work in Sierra Leone again because it just really came across so strongly like your passion and your commitment to your previous work um, and being able to do that again yeah. so do, do you want to talk yeah, yeah about how that came about it's um, probably another cliche but the only reason that I wanted to like sort of use anthropology in a tangible way in healthcare is because like you want to everybody needs job satisfaction like, everybody needs to feel like they're doing something and I always wanted to feel like I want to I'm like I'm helping for something you know? like I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I wake up one day and all my efforts and sleepless nights stressing around work were all just to increase the boss man's profit margin you know like that's not how I want to live my life it's not your contribution no and so like when it, when it comes to the work say that I'll be going on to do again in Syria it's not that it's like more impactful than the work that we're doing here at HSIU it's just because it's in a really short time scale it's a lot more immediate so actually this is almost a selfish move on my part yeah. because when you're working in areas of infectious disease control you can see a lot more immediate returns for energy and investment if you're putting in to try and help a community or help prevent an outbreak because you can see a tangible result you can see this is something that we can do now mm-hmm. so if there is another outbreak or when the next outbreak comes along this can be done this can be acted on or this can now be a piece of research we can put on whereas other areas of health research like in chronic diseases like in a lot of the clinical trials that we're on we're over a lot longer time periods mm-hmm. so it's the exact same sort of impact you're having but the immediate reward you get is reason like my, my sort of passion comes across more for that area is just because it's like more of an immediate feedback so that's probably why I'm a bit more fervent when I talk about that but both both areas I think are equally like really in, obviously important but areas I think anthropology can contribute to mm-hmm. so it's been great to be able to apply anthropology as best as I can in both areas yeah. but when I'm talking like when I'm talking about my work previously in Sierra Leone it was a lot more of a visceral experience and you're quite emotive some of the things that yeah. you encounter both good and bad mm-hmm. um, sort of really high drive home to you like the underlying the work that you're doing so that's probably why I, I speak about it like that and plus if it's about anthropology as you probably already know you <laughs> end up talking and talking until somebody stops me yeah we, we might actually be touching on a contentious point in modern day anthropology because I went to a talk from a very famous anthropologist well known in the field of anthropology and asked the question about applied anthropology because I mean so for all the anthropologists listening they might be thinking like what the hell is this guy talking about applied anthropology what specifically does he mean by that mm-hmm. because ethnography which is the sort of the core of anthropology research is typically done over years and years mm-hmm. and so what I'm talking about using it in very short time periods yeah. which is ups and downs so there are strengths and weaknesses to shortening it like you, you lose a lot of what makes it ethnography I believe that there are aspects of ethnography that can be incorporated into the short time scale research project that still maintain a level of richness of data that informs mm-hmm. the outcomes that we're trying to gather, more so than other qualitative research methods. Um, so I've coined the term ethnography light, which is using this like otherwise two, five year research methodology in two, three months instead. Yeah, so it's much more condensed. Yeah, but then uh, this is like very specific to the way that I approach the discipline and the way I'm trying to drag it in screening into actually being busy.
research and what is useful, but that we still maintain the length of time required to conduct experimental research. Yeah. So by more and more deciding on shorter scales, it's a bit like bit of a contention. So that's interesting. And are you um, one of many, or is this something that you're? I like to view myself as a trailblazer. Yeah. A okay, yeah. anthropologist. Or yeah. Go by now. Yeah. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's not that much ethnography life cycle that I've seen. build capacity and uh, yeah well you've got to be very conscious of not just well, there's a very extractive nature to research especially uh, international research mm-hmm. and especially mm-hmm. if you've got the legacy of the discipline that anthropology yeah. has right, yeah. so you want to avoid not just extracting data from people but I think also extracting data from them as well mm-hmm. because you're not coming in as some sort of white saviour travelling internationally oh I will bestow upon you all my discipline knowledge it's, you know that's, that's, not it. that's yeah. definitely not what I, I view the discipline to be Mm-hmm. So this is how we should be working collaboratively together, 
not in a extractive way, not in a white savior sort of way that we're going to come in and fix all this for you. Like that's definitely like old guard or the different than the way I view it. Um, and so hopefully with the work that we do with LSHDM now, we can be continuing that sort of work, but this time in Sierra Leone instead. Yeah. So it's just really learning and, and implementing that model. And I think as well, your I guess your knowledge and experience of the country, having worked, lived and worked there for two months, going back to be there for four months, you're you know, very yeah. much for your I think if you're doing research internationally, especially to a place you haven't been before, no matter where it is, the second, third, fourth times that you go back there are a lot better than the big collection, mm -hmm. just because I think you have that experience of, of working in Sierra. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, going back to Sierra Leone, again, I don't think I'll be as involved in big collections, but because I have experience of building a research team previously when I was there and going out to rural communities during rainy seasons, uh, this is experience that the research On that, so the, you know, you've mentioned a few times, quite a few times, clearly underpins, you know, your the whole raison d'etre, if, uh, if you will, of you know what what you're doing and why. And you've also mentioned the paper, I think, twice. So they, this paper, so what what do you can you comment on? You know, actually making this difference. You know, this this um, fairly quickly realised real world impact of in the community versus, or not versus, but you know, how do they sit together then the sort of publication of the, the data, which is, you know, yeah. ageing. <laughs> um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very cautious about the publication because, again, it gets back to data extraction, like you're taking something from somebody and you're putting it out there with your name on it and then you're benefiting from it. Yeah. So the historical problem in anthropology was that somebody would go to a community and they would become a member of that community, right? They would spend years with them mm -hmm. and they would form some very strong bonds, you know, nobody's disputing that. But then they write a paper and a book and then they get a teaching job and right. which could be on you know tens of thousands of pounds a year in salary so they have access to all these different things based on that experience and the data they've gathered from the people they were experimenting with definitely and so the reason that i always um, like wanted to push this paper is just because i want there to to be a, a point for the labor that we put into gathering that data so not just josephine the other embassy student mm -hmm. i was working with but i have a friend called jimmy was working with me as my uh, translator. I remember him from the lecture. Yeah, yeah, I loved him. He was, he, I mean, he was working. I mean, I wasn't getting paid because I was a student, but he wasn't getting paid either. He just wanted to contribute to this research. Right. So he and I were just going to all these field sites to conduct this research, and he was translating all the communities that we were doing. So he was like an absolute integral 100% part. We wouldn't have got done without him. He was part of the research. And I think he also had a vested interest in seeing all this effort that we had going towards contributing mm -hmm. towards a positive way to do that is to have a peer-reviewed journal that then other people could use as an evidence base for Ghana's connections. So on the one hand, I don't want it to come across like I want this paper published so I can make my stack of cash. You know, that's, I don't think that's why anybody goes into research, especially research in healthcare, right? Yeah. But what you do want is the efforts and basically the time that you need to put in. Like these people who I'm talking to, the time out of their lives mm -hmm. to speak to me about potentially sensitive topics, you know, it's aspects of their healthcare. And I think you have an ethical obligation if you've done that Mm -hmm. doing what you said to them that it would do, which is trying to hopefully re 
reduce their exposure to lactobacillus yeah. in this case, or contribute towards changes in public health response, which can reduce people's exposure to lactobacillus. So, like, regardless of the topic, though, I think you have an obligation as a researcher whenever you're involved in collecting data from somebody, like a qualitative researcher, mm-hmm. they're there, they're inviting you into their home, they're talking to you for hours, and they would be doing something else. You ask them a personal question, they'll be gracious enough to answer truthfully to you, and then if you just sit on that data and nothing comes of it. I mean, it was a great experience for you, but for them, yeah. there's a very natural point to this, right? Yeah. There's an actual effect on people's lives that needs to be very conscious of. So that's why, like, it's not entirely for selfish reasons that I want to push the paper, uh, but I still would like to get it out of this because, like, there's so to much... To do justice to the... Well, yeah, there's so much work went into that, and I yeah. honestly believe that it... I, mean, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think that it could contribute towards betterment of the situation currently as it, as it stands. So I think it's a fine line to dance as well, maybe compared with some other kind of approaches to health research, applied health research, or indeed other fields of research, you know, some people do their research, I guess, at their desk in an office, um, not quite ivory towers, but, you know, there is this kind of distancing, but when yeah. you're actually out there and there are faces and there are people and you're interacting and you're, you know, you do form bonds and it, 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 do you think that that really reinforces that? Oh yeah, definitely. Like I don't want to, uh, I won't talk too much about the specifics of things that I encountered in security training because it's probably not like the most appropriate topics to mention. But especially when people have a general idea that you're there for something relating to healthcare, mm-hmm. people will come to you with various ailments and issues, either for themselves or for family members. So that obviously means you can't go so far. I yeah. am to all the different sites and all the yeah yeah so again it comes down to balancing what's feasible and what's an effective way of gathering data so i think the ideal is always in person but when you can't you you can't but then that also then contributes towards the detachment that you feel from it 
facilitated research here, I confess I'm <laughs> one of those two. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. And having done telephone interviews, you know, the rapport broke, it's, it's quite a different experience altogether, yeah. really. Well, one of the main things that I have always felt within anthropology that is uh, a benefit to qualitative research is the emphasis on building rapport. So it's not just that this is my methodology, I will go and I will do an interview and I will then observe and Yeah. Subject was the, was how it began, right? And so if you, if yeah. you're already creating a difference between the white lab coat and the subject you're studying, and that's not how I think. That's not how I do it. That's not how I think it should be really when we're trying to, especially healthcare, which is so personal. To people's right. Lives, right. There's yeah. probably nothing more personal a topic than people's healthcare and the healthcare of their families, because this is it can be questions of life or death to some extent. Yeah. And so to treat that as the respect that it deserves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having a close and trusting space in which there's not really a power dynamic. Of, yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, in terms of you going forward now um, with this work, so you're leaving for London next week. Yeah, no, so um, my flight is Friday morning at 7 a.m. So it's just as well. So just for, for listeners, we're recording this. Uh, just um, it's about three o'clock um, on a Monday afternoon. Is that right? Isn't about that? Um, in April, um, the 29th of April, 2019. Um, so you're leaving on Friday. So it's just as well. You're used to living out of a bag or being able to in that way. Is that for everything packed and? Uh, not yet. Not yet. I don't Well, you mentioned just before we started recording that you've just kind of. Um, removed everything from your desk and yeah. done that. Yeah, I did that yesterday, just put everything in the box, so um, my desk was very empty and I realised how dusty it's gone. So <laughs> but I've done most of my, my afternoon at yep. There's still like a few, like I, did, I did laundry before, so I was everything was washed up. That's all still dry and so I can't pack that yet. So, yeah. There's other things that I need to get together because the removal company is coming on Wednesday. Okay, so, so you've got... Is it Thursday? Did I do a DP? Yeah, <laughs> important things. Yeah, especially now because um, Aberdeen Airport has upgraded its um, facilities recently, so we have like slightly um, yes more fancy um, process than was previously there. That's not a reason to come visit. <laughs> so there's that. So you leave on Friday. Um, are you having any time for a break before you start your new job? Technically, yeah. So I'll land. 
Friday at around nine ish. Okay. Um, and then I had a meeting at like ten or two pm to like authenticate all my documents. Like, yeah. And, okay. and then I start work on Tuesday because Monday is bank holiday. Oh so yeah, of course. I'll have a couple of days. So you've got like a long weekend. Yeah, there's there's a lot of press I need to do though. So I I had asked for those like having me scheduled so I could just yeah. get on board with it. Yeah. Because they sent over the um project outline for the project I'm joining and it was around eighty pages long and I read it in, in a day because I was like, want it. It wants to yeah. Then I got back to them the same day. I was like, I read it, sounds great. I, I want to know this, this, and this, and how can I do this, this? So they sent me a bunch of stuff, and then obviously everything that I need to finish for academia came coalescing together. Yeah. And so now I haven't actually had a chance to do that. So it might be a bit awkward if I turn up like, how are you getting all that prep stuff you asked me to send over? I'm like, why do I have a prep again? Just be in front of the That's all the weekends, all right? Extended weekend, I can can do those bits. Yeah. And I suppose that's the thing about sort of managing transition, isn't it? Because I suppose in the. Uh, you know, and working in a university setting and working in research, the, the kind of work is never done. Almost, it's kind of you know, it, yeah. it's difficult to package it up. And I think even the way you know you're talking about doing the work in Sierra Leone as well, this kind of continuing thread does not, you know, start finish. Mm-hmm. The clock doesn't yeah, work like that way. That's one thing I will always say about working in a higher education institution, especially as a researcher, is it's very easy to sort of lose yourself in all these different things you can get involved with. And then you can very quickly lose track of the like rewards that you would get from completing something. Yeah. I think with perhaps other areas of work where you complete a task, it's very much a done deal, and then you get immediate reward feedback on that yeah. and feel good about having perfected the course or something. Whereas from my experience in research, it's a lot more slow burning. Mm-hmm. You revisit things, things are ongoing over a long period of time, and there's a lot of scope for collaboration and other yeah. areas you can get involved with. So ostensibly, my contract here is to do the research within um, three clinical trials mm-hmm. and then I've joined a research project that's what my um, Friday Tuesday course is about. Yep. Uh, but, but alongside that I would obviously take part in the public engagement as a group in their activities here mm-hmm. and then contribute to the quality based research methods course that yep. you and I have been working on and then there's that work for, for the Latin Fever Preparedness Network with the Nigerian Center for Disease Control that I collaborated with earlier this year on. Uh, so there's all these other things that are ongoing. So lots of different pans boiling. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So it can sometimes feel like you're spinning a lot of plates. Yeah. Keep everything going. And so then when you complete one, you're very quickly then substituted by another. Yeah. You don't get the moment of having just done that. So if you are going to be working in any sort of research field, especially as an early career researcher, there are so many great opportunities that could you could get involved with. So go for it. But just be very cautious and not lose yourself. Because otherwise you could then do a year's worth of work. And at no point have you had a moment of reflection or completion of something. Yeah. Because the next thing so that's like something i think to be wary of if you want to work in a higher education yeah. but at the same time i think if you're doing that it's because you presumably care and you have studied previously in that area so it's not like it's going to be difficult in a sense of motivation mm-hmm. to it, but it's just important to make sure you do get those sort of those positive feedback because everybody needs that yeah and that reinforcement of yeah and that, that time to step back and reflect and, yeah. and sort of yeah look at the, the achievement or the and so outside of work, do you have anything that you specifically do to get that kind of hit of achievement or is there anything that you balance that kind of... Well, my, my hobbies and interests. <laughs> walks on the beach, getting caught in the rain. <laughs> uh, there was, before I came down to uni, so I probably had, this, this isn't advice, this is probably something that I've done wrong, is that when I joined here, obviously I didn't really know many people. And you're in a bit of a limbo state, I think, in early career research, because you're 
young enough to the same age as all the students. Yeah. But you're a staff member, so it's a bit odd to go to like a student event. Yeah. But then you're not quite old as other members of staff who have all got their families that they then see after work. So you can't really get involved too much yeah. after work. So rather than like trying to navigate that, I just sort of like all over the board perhaps with um I work here. So I have I've been neglecting all that hobbies that we do to spend all my time at work and then go home and come back, which is probably an unhealthy way of doing it. I, I had things that I used to do before coming here that I want to get back into and get a chance to like to paint, which is a fun like way of combining like something that relaxes you mm-hmm. and also something that gives you a sense of accomplishment when you complete the day. Oils of watercolour? Oh, so I started out with acrylic because I'm basically very bad at painting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have since bought oils because okay. I do want to practice with oils. Yeah. But it's always been a bit daunting because I know how much more difficult and expensive it is. Okay. But the way I paint is like with Bob Ross style, right? Where it's like relaxing the scenic views and if okay. you take a mistake that's part of the scene right because otherwise if you like I think obsess over it then it's not a relaxing hobby anymore. right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah. going to start draining on you um, but I, I love um, learning languages actually yeah. so I've kept oh, that yeah, since that's I've been right. here yeah. you've been doing yeah yeah I of course cool. so luckily for me they here at University of Aberdeen the Confucian Institute offers free Mandarin classes for all members of staff and obviously I previously tried my best to learn Mandarin um, when I was Initially going to Hong Kong yeah. for like my undergrad research, um, and so I wanted to like try and pick that up and expand that. So I, uh, I did that one when I was here, which was quite fun. Yeah. It's like I previously have touched and gone in and out of loads of different languages, and it's really difficult, especially as an anthropologist, to commit to one. Because mm-hmm. when I first went to my undergrad, I signed up for German because I'd been learning that prior to going to uni. I was just continuing, and then I'd also joined the British Sign Language course. Yeah. Carried on during my postgraduate, and then when I went to um, initially do my research on CLEM, I tried my best <laughs> to learn Korean, um, which is one of the languages in CLEM. But then when I arrived in Josephine and I were planning where we would be conducting our research, I ended up in a community whose main language was Mende. Okay. <laughs> so all of my efforts to learn Korean went out the window. So I tried to learn <laughs> Mende, just because I think when you're going to a place, the very least you can do is try. Say something. Yeah. Well. That's <laughs> Like, luckily for me, I had somebody who could then work as a translator with me. Right. me. But you want to speak to people in that language, right? Yeah. You don't want to come in and just be like, oh, I don't speak the language, so you need to learn my language. Yeah, right, right. So, like, I could try my best, but in very short timescales, you can't always get through it. And then, by the time you are learning, getting up to a proficiency level, you then change <laughs> research topics, which normally, you go to a different country and a different language. So, I'm back on Mandarin now. Important certificate. I know, I know. But what's probably more important is that I can actually speak it yep. at that level. Definitely, definitely. But it's been really fun, you know, doing that here and having something like that. Like each week you can see how you can your progress yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and actually just adding different, different skills and, and yeah, and testing yourself. Yeah, well, I love language anyway. So, do you have any um, plans to learn? Like, are you going to the same areas of Sierra Leone that you previously uh, No, so this time, previously I was in Bogue or okay. Inland, and then the community that I was working with was Southern Language Mende, mm-hmm. whereas this time I'll be in Freetown, which is the capital, which I believe Korea is So will you be able to rewind your, your brain cells and, and recall those powers of Korea that were previously? I've still got a book actually. I've been in. Okay, so good. I'm trying to go 
I'm on a bit of a roll with that doing that. So I want to keep it going. So. And so in terms of the future then, who knows, maybe you'll be working in China somewhere in the future? Maybe. I, yeah, I'd love to go back to China. Yeah. I'm, I'm always great. I, I love yeah. going there. Obviously, I would much prefer to go during the winter. Because <laughs> I'm not doing well with their summers. One like side note, when I was there in August, like in 2015, yeah. I was with my friend and he was taking me to like these rock falls on a mountain hike. It wasn't really the scenic view in a really nice place, but it was the uh, hottest day on record that they've had. And there's me. What, what temperature do you know? Oh, it was like well, it was high 30s, oh. like mega mega high, but it's the humidity there. Right. Yeah. So there was this one period where I think I've ever been so close to dying of heat stroke in my life. Like I was lying on the floor, halfway up this mountain, and I was just like, just leave me here. <laughs> I, 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 Sorry, I I'm not laughing. Yeah. That was fine. And there was um, these construction workers who were like rebuilding a damaged area of the footpath in like thick protective work gear oh God. hiking up and down with construction materials just looking at who's this guy lying on the floor panting <laughs> drunk drowning in a pool of his own sweat oh so my God. if I were to go back I would much prefer to go in December time because I right. went to the Christmas once so and it was around 20 degrees low humidity so it was like a real comfortable temperature for me so as a top tip from the anthropologist thinking about the weather, which you mentioned in terms of Aberdeen, and obviously now in terms of China, it's a big, important consideration. Uh, it, it is just because like, you need to, if you're going there for research, you need to be able to work in that. Yeah, right. So it was quite a uh, brutal um, climatization when I first went to Sierra Leone, because I land and it's like instantly incredibly high humidity since the beginning of rain season, and it's in like the mid-30s, and obviously the places I was staying didn't have any sort of AC. Yeah, the place yeah. I was staying at didn't have well, government power anywhere in the area I was staying didn't have, wasn't very reliable. So the generator I could use for a couple of hours in the evening to recharge uh, my phone, which I was using as a data collection tool for photographs and recording. Right, yeah, yeah. And also to charge my laptop because then I was doing my own interview transcription as well and then sending a recording back to the office as well. Because that's what I needed to use the power for. Uh, and then when it went off, I, you know, I won't get too much into it. There's a whole issue with like funding and yeah. being able to buy food. So I had my one tin of beans that I had in that day because I, I had to reallocate a lot of funds for transporting this research team I had with me. Yeah. Uh, which meant I didn't have enough to, to buy a lot of food with. So that was a bit of a struggle. I had a cold tin of beans and then we'd try and go to sleep uh, in like 30 degree heat and humidity. Obviously no AC in that yeah. but for the first like couple of weeks because I was waking up at around 4 a.m. every day anyway. Yeah. Because I had to get a uh, motorbike out to these areas that Coming inaccessible really during the rain season because a lot of the paths um, just become like quite yeah, yeah yeah so difficult to navigate with anything other than a motorbike and so that makes it like a 40 minute to an hour ride and the areas that I was researching in uh, people living in these villages would um, obviously live their lives during the day so you only had a brief window from sunrise for about an hour or so before they would go off and yeah or fine or whatever. Their, their job, their daily life, yeah. Um, so that was the, like the best time for me to actually not be too intrusive in their life and, yeah. and speak to them about you know, their own questions that they had. So that meant getting up uh, for him to then get there for sunrise. Yeah. So riding the whole way, doing uh, two two hours of interviews and conversation and trap demonstrations and spending time with people in, in the village uh, before they then left. And then I would come back and get back at around lunchtime load everything that I had, so the audio recordings and photographs, mm. and write up my notes, and then transcribe the audio recordings in the number of hours of power that I had, that would take me to like early evening, and have my first and only meal of the day, my gold beans, or at times, 
sounds like a griffin in my face because I'm scared. You painted a very vivid Sorry. and uncomfortable picture. It, it was quite intense. Like... Well, so I think just for me, it was because uh, I didn't, as a student, there wasn't that much funding available to me. So I had to pull together different, say, awards that I could apply for. Right. Funding for me. I remember the research consulting funded things like pricing accommodation. Uh, but as a student, you don't have access to large amounts of funding. You just yeah. buy a printer and yeah. buy a bunch of things. And so I was living on a tight budget anyway. And then there was just an issue where this vehicle that I was meant to be able to use to field a research team of around four um, students in Sierra Leone who were taking part in the data collection of like quantitative aspects yeah. of the research project um, needed to get to the field site. And I couldn't use the vehicle, so I had to then pay for a motorbike to take all of them. Um, and then obviously there's remuneration and then there's biometrics. Yeah. So that had to come from somewhere. And the only funds I had immediate access to were the funds I put aside for my own research. Yeah. So that was like a reallocation I had to do. So it was like sort of self-inflicted just because I didn't have access to the resources to like have a buffer for that. Um, but I think any sort of field work in healthcare and especially in infectious diseases where the, in, when you're working in areas which have outbreaks of infectious diseases, it's going to be quite a difference in the life that you're used to in your day-to-day life, yeah. no matter what you do, right? So a lot of variety. So the way I would do things like anthropology is it's a mindset. So I think you just have the mindset of being open rolling with these things and just working with it and keeping in mind why you're there and the project you're on and the research that you're doing and that's obviously the priority then because you have not just yet all the publications you've already got onto about the emergency and the post comes on this from people who are taking part mm-hmm. but also you do want to see some legitimate change and mm-hmm. some effective outcome you can only do that if you've got a sound rigorous methodology that you can to so it, it can be tough at times and there's always going to be struggles that you face when you're conducting research like this but if you've got the mindset for it and you're just on board with it and you just don't let That's obvious. I was going to end there, but um, I was going to say if, if my final question would be if you weren't an anthropologist, what would you be or who would you be? But actually, I don't I, know if you've already I, convinced I, us that you are I, the I, anthropologist. Yeah, I have thought about that so much, and I honestly don't think I would be doing anything because, like, or any, anything that was something I cared about. Yeah. I would just be doing any, any job that could take me just to pay the bills. Okay. Because, like, I, w- I was really lucky to find it at A&M and then to be able to change all of it at an undergraduate. Because a lot of people, I think, will say, oh, if I haven't found it by this time, then, uh, like, say after they graduate, I still don't know what I want to do, and they can get quite sort of downtrodden about what they can go on to do. But with anthropology, a lot of people found it at, a- at sorry, at undergraduate, because mm-hmm. it only became an A-level in, like, I mean, it's, the A-level is now gone, <laughs> like, it's like cancelled right. in, like, 2014, so... So you're one of the few who <laughs> that way. <laughs> who's done an A-level undergrad and postgrad. So yeah. all I need to do is a PhD, and then I'll be like, one in a million who's done all of this. Um, but I'm lucky that I found it then. I yep. could have equally found it at a later time and then changed it again. Yeah. So I think the, the, the only thing you can really do is just find whatever it is that interests you, and then just try as best you can to make that the job, because otherwise you, you would just not get the same level of satisfaction otherwise get if you were getting the, the reward that you would do from doing what it is you enjoy so just just do what you enjoy that's that's my only that's your, your advice yeah so if i weren't doing anthropology and if i hadn't found it i would probably still have to just do what i enjoyed which i guess would have been history because i liked studying that at school but i think the reason for that was because 
difficult for me as other subjects were during my secondary school mm-hmm. and during college. So I enjoyed learning it because it wasn't a struggle and I was interested in the story. Right. But I think what interested me about history was the reason I like anthropology is it's like the human aspect, right? I was very interested in people's stories and the lives that you could then learn in history. Whereas in anthropology, it's basically that, but people are still alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's still around, you know, it's not super you're learning about it's someone who's answering who's just there. So. Yeah. And it's collaborative rather than yeah yeah <laughs> Dan Brunston thank you very much thank you, for me. Thank you. absolute pleasure and uh, yes all the best with your new work and I look forward to hopefully we can update this recording in a few years to come to see where you're at happy to come back anytime perfect thank, thank you so you. much